Today we want to continue our series in the book of James. Um, as I said at the beginning of this series, James is the bossiest book in the Bible. It's the bossiest book in the Bible, in a good way. Sometimes people are bossy. When my kids were small, they used to try to boss each other around. And they, they had a favorite phrase they liked to use. It was, uh, you're not the boss of me. Don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Fortunately for us, when James is bossy, he's bossy in a good way. He's telling us the right things to do, which are not only the right things to do, therefore our good. Not only God's glory, but also our good. And the passage that we want to look at today from the book of James is probably the most famous part of the book of James. It's in James chapter 2, starting at verse 14 and finishing at the end of the chapter, verse 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And very simply, the title of the message today is Faith Without Works is Dead. Faith Without Works is Dead. That's not my title. That's James' title. That's an exact quote from the text that we're going to look at today. Faith Without Works is Dead. So before we look at that today, let's bow for one more word of prayer. Father God, we thank you again that you have saved us, that you have made a way for us by sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when we respond in faith to that work that Jesus has done for us, when we put our faith in him, when we put our trust in him, we become your children. And as your children, you call us to do the right thing. You call us to live in obedience to you. You uh, command us to be faithful followers of yours. And so I pray today as we look at this uh, once again bossy, once again practical section in the book of James about faith and works. That you would give us clarity of mind to understand what he is saying. That you would give us openness of heart to receive what he is saying to us and what you are saying to us. And may we respond in works of obedience that are pleasing to you for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I always pray, cleanse my lips to speak your truth. I forgot to do that today. One second while we pray. One more, one more time. Father God, cleanse my lips now to speak your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith without works is dead. It's not sick. It's not injured. It's not asleep. James says, faith without works is dead. 
Now, there are lots of people, when they hear this, if they're familiar with other parts of the Bible, it kind of rubs them the wrong way. They say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Martin Luther, famous reformer, once, uh, when he translated the German Bible, put the book of James at the very end when he translated, because he said, I don't think this is very good. He called it a right strawy epistle. It's, it's mostly straw, it's mostly fluff. There's not really a lot of good stuff in there. Now, I think the reason why some people have trouble with this section is I think most of the time, especially in the Western church, we love to pray from Paul's epistles. And the book of Galatians is one of those books that spends a lot of time talking about no one can be justified by the works of the law. Donna read our scripture earlier in the service today. And two of the verses that are there, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we read these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And people zero in on that, the first, what is it, five, six words of verse 9. Not a result of works. And so when people hear James say things like, faith without works is dead, their response is, well, wait a minute, how does all this work together? Paul is spending a lot of time saying, you can't be saved by works. And James is saying, faith without works is dead. How do those two things fit together? How do we understand them both? They're both in the Bible. They both must be true. So how can we understand those two things together? Basically, what I want to say before we look specifically at the text is that Paul and James when they talk about faith and works, are not different. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Both of them have different audiences, different concerns, different uh, issues that they're dealing with, but the vocabulary that they are using is not really different. In other words, what I'm trying to say is Paul is dealing with a group of people, especially in the book of Galatians, who are trying to argue, yes, you need faith in Jesus, but you also need the law in order to be saved. Faith plus works equals salvation. Believe in Jesus, follow the law, and you will be saved. And Paul is trying to argue totally against that. No one can be saved by following the law. It's only through faith in Jesus. James comes along and he is dealing with a different group of people who are saying, I have faith, but I don't do anything. I have faith, but I don't do anything. And by anything, I mean I don't love God, I don't love my neighbor, I don't do anything that God wants me to do. 
And so James is making an argument to a different group of people. One is saying salvation is caused by works. That's, and Paul is arguing against that. And James is arguing against the people who are saying, I can have faith and I don't have to do anything. So they have different concerns and different audiences and different problems that they're dealing with, but they do not, they do not, they do not disagree with each other. Now, there are some key terms that both Paul and James use that I want to mention quickly, and they both use them in the same way. In other words, when Paul talks about faith and when James talks about faith, they both mean belief and trust and commitment to Jesus based on his work on the cross. When they both use the word justify or justification, they both mean declare as righteous. The difference when they use these words is what is the subject of the declaration. In other words, when Paul is talking about declaring as righteous, he says, God declares you righteous based on what Jesus has done. James says, works declare you righteous. They show, they prove, they declare that you are righteous. So the subject of the verb is different, but the meaning of the verb is the same. Finally, the word works. When Paul uses works, he's talking about acts of righteousness. When James uses the word works, he means acts of righteousness. So they are both using the same words in the same way, but they're addressing different problems. So, with that as a background... Let's take a look at what James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 has to say. Because in this passage, James is going to contrast for us three different kinds of faith. And only the last one is real. So let's take a look. In verses 14 to 17, he's going to talk about inactive faith. Dead faith, meaningless faith. In verses 18 and 19, he's going to talk about false faith. You think you're being faithful, but you're really not. And then finally, in verses 20 to 26, he's going to talk about true faith. What does true faith look like? All right, so with that... Let's move into the first one. The first section, verses 14 to 17, is about inactive faith. Starting at verse 14, James uses the same rhetorical question at the beginning and at the end of this section. And he basically asks the question, what good is it? What good is it? What value is there in this thing that I'm going to talk about? Here's what he says, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? Again, my brothers indicating he's moving on to a new topic. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says 
he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? You say, oh boy, that doesn't sound very Paul. But notice exactly what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Doesn't say that they have faith. If someone says, claims, suggests that he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith, can that particular kind of faith, a faith that never produces fruits of righteousness, that never does the right thing, that just sits around and does nothing in terms of obeying God, pleasing Him, serving Him, can that kind of faith save Him? And the answer is implied by the rhetorical question. The answer is no. No. Inactive faith isn't worth anything. What good is it, brothers? It's not good. It's no good. It's worthless. It is an empty faith. It's an empty faith claim. And he goes on in verse 15 and verse 16 to give a very ridiculous example. He says in verse 15, if a brother or a sister, someone in your church, someone who claims to be a believer in Jesus, just like you claim to be a believer in Jesus, if someone in your church is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, not just a meal for today, but they are struggling. They are not eating every day. They don't have clothes to wear. They don't have food on the table. If there's someone like that in your church, and one of you comes to them and says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? It's worthless. It's garbage. It's nothing. Now, it's interesting that, that James would use this example. Brother or sister in your church that needs something practical, clothes to wear, food to eat, and the response that the person gives them is classic Jewish greeting. Go in peace. You don't have to know any Hebrew to know the word shalom. Shalom. That's what go in peace means. I want you to have peace. I know that there are problems in your life, but I'm giving you a special blessing. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. I hope you somehow get some clothing. I hope somehow you get some food. But I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to do absolutely nothing. Shalom, in this case, becomes a meaningless blessing. It mocks fellow 
believers. Because a faith without a response of righteous works is an empty faith. Whenever I read this verse, I'm reminded of a friend of mine from China. He was the pastor of the, the small church that we planted together in 2012. Oasis Fellowship. Before we planted that church, we used to meet with the big church, BICF. It's a big church, had lots of people in it, over 3,000. Anyway, they had an English service at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. And at the end of the service, after the pastor would give the sermon, they would sing a closing song, and then there would be people at the front of the auditorium that if anybody needed prayer, you could come to the front and people would pray with you. If you're having trouble with your family, if you had any sort of issue, if you wanted to receive Jesus as your savior, you could come. It wasn't an altar call, it was just left open. At the end of every service, you could come and have someone pray for you. So after preaching a message on this text, someone came to my friend, Jason, down at the front, and he was from South America. And he said to him, I've come to Beijing because I was part of a, a band. He played music in bars and clubs. He'd become a Christian. And because he'd become a Christian, he wouldn't do all the wild and crazy things that his other band members were doing. So they kicked him out of the band. And so now he was in a position where he was not making any money and he had no place to live. And my friend, Pastor Jason, had just rented a new two-bedroom apartment. And he was a single man. He only needed one bedroom. And he started to think in his mind, what am I going to do? How can I help this person? How can I help this person? And the Holy Spirit said to him, what's wrong with you? You know what you're supposed to do. You know what you need to do. And so he said to the young man, I have a two-bedroom apartment. Would you like to come and live with me? And that young man lived with my friend, Jason Sigsby, for two years. And he told me, Jason, not the young man, but Jason told me, it was one of the greatest experiences of his life. To be able to nurture someone young in their faith, to practice his Spanish, which he hadn't used for a long time, and all the blessings he received by simply responding in a practical way to a person who had a real need. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says, get lost, I don't have time for you, what good is it? Truth be told, there have been times when I have done exactly what these verses say. Someone comes along and they have a need and I, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you 
that somehow, some way, your problem will be solved. I'm not going to do anything, but I'll pray. That's not good enough. What does he conclude in verse 17? Based on this illustration, he says, so also faith by itself, faith that sits there and does nothing, if it does not have works, is dead. It is a corpse. It has no life. This is inactive faith. And James condemns it. Faith without works is dead. That's the first kind of faith. The second kind of faith that he talks about is a little bit more subtle, but it's also very dangerous. He mentions this in verses 18 and 19, and I'm calling it false faith. False faith. So in verse 18, James says this, Someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. And a lot of people get all hung up on what James is saying here. I thought he was the guy that was saying that he had works. Now this other person is saying, James, you have faith. That's not what he's saying here. All he's simply trying to say is, this is a first century way of using an abstract example. Someone says this, another person says that. Someone will say, this one has faith, and this one has works. So, again, he's using an example to try and make the argument that faith is not opposed to works. Someone will say, this one has faith, that one has works. Now what? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The word show there doesn't simply mean make visible. It means prove. Prove to me that you have faith apart from your works and I will prove to you that my faith is real by my works. Faith and works go together. They are not opposed to each other. The only way to show true faith is by living a life of faith. When we first started this series, I, put, I wrote in the newsletter devotional an example. I'll use that example again because I think it's very appropriate. I watched that baseball game yesterday Kind of sad. Yeah, too. Sorry about that. Anyway, it makes for a perfect illustration. Truth be told, I'm not a Blue Jay fan. I love the Boston Red Sox, but that's for another time. But anyway, here's my point. If I say I love the Toronto Blue Jays, if I say I love the Toronto Blue Jays, and then you ask me, who's your favorite player? And I say to you, I don't know any of the players on the team. I don't know who, who there is. And they say, oh, they have this one guy, George Springer. 
But he and the shortstop collided yesterday and they had to take him off on a cart. And I responded, good, I'm glad he's injured. And you say, do you ever go to their games? No. Do you ever watch them on TV? No. Do you ever listen to their games on the radio? No. What's your conclusion? I say I'm a Toronto Blue Jays fan, but am I really a Toronto Blue Jays fan? I don't back it up by the way that I act. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. If I truly have faith, I will act like it. I will act like it. And so James tries to make the argument that faith by itself, faith that never produces the fruit of the Spirit, Faith that never produces the fruit of righteousness. Is that faith real? You say it, but is it really real? Jesus gives a warning in the Sermon on the Mount about this very kind of thing. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, he says it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So these people were really excited about public displays of power, but notice the last verse. And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. What does he call them? You workers of lawlessness. They were happy to call Jesus Lord, but when it came to live for him, to do things to please him, to live as he has commanded us to live in his word, they were workers of lawlessness. Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by your works. In verse 19, a scary verse, he says at the beginning, you believe that God is one, you do well. Now, this is not a big leap for James to make this statement. You believe that God is one. Every Jew believed that God is one. Why? Because every morning, every day, even to this day, Orthodox Jews, when they wake up in the morning, 
the very first words out of their mouth are supposed to be Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. What do those verses say? Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. When you wake up, you will say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Every morning, every Jew, when they woke up, would say these words, The Lord is one. He says, You believe that God is one? Good for you. You say it every day. Fantastic. But what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? And he ends the verse by saying this. Even the demons believe that God is one. And they shudder. Now why did he put that part in about the demons shuddering? What he's really trying to say here is the faith that you have is so meaningless that you say with your mouth and maybe think with your head God is one, but you don't do anything about it. You don't do anything about it. But the demons know that God is one and they are terrified by that because they actually believe that it has consequences. There is something to this belief and they shudder because they know that they are in big trouble. You say you believe in God, that God is one, and yet there is no response from you at all. The demons respond better than you do. You believe that God is one? Good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And you see these surveys in North America that go, out, go, across, go along all the time and talk about how many people in the United States or Canada or North America as a whole believe in God. And the numbers can be quite high. And yet, even though people say, yes, I believe that God is real, it has zero effect on the way that I live. Zero. You believe God is one? Good for you. You believe that God is real? Good for you. What are you doing about it? Faith without works is dead. And so James concludes on a positive note. He's scolded us for the first few verses here, but starting at verse 20, he encourages us to live a life of true faith. True faith. And he's going to use two examples. One example he's going to use is Abraham. And the other example of true faith he's going to use is Rahab. So let's look and see what he has to say here. Starting in verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now that sounds really harsh. 
Listen, you stupid idiot. Let me tell you something. Now, foolish is harsh, but this word can be translated in various ways. It could be foolish, could be stupid, but it, it basically means empty. Empty. In other words, the person who does nothing. Do you want me to show you, empty person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's ineffective. It doesn't come across in the English, but in the Greek, the word that James used for useless is what's called the alpha privative, which is just a fancy way of saying a not on the front, like not good, not happy, not real. The alpha privative means not combined with the word works, not works. In other words, if I could read it this way, James says, do you want to be shown, empty person, that faith that doesn't work, doesn't work? Faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't get the job done. Faith without works doesn't work. I'm going to show you that faith that doesn't work doesn't work. Example number one, Abraham. And here's the example that he uses. Was not Abraham our father, the person that every Jew looks to, who loves as the father of the nation? Was not Abraham our father, justified, declared righteous, shown or proved to be righteous by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you're not familiar with that story, in Genesis 23, God tells Abraham to take Isaac, his son, up onto a mountain and to sacrifice him. And they go up on the mountain, and as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into his son's body to kill him, God says, stop. I know that you truly believe and you are following me. And he provides a ram. And the ram is sacrificed instead of his son. So James reminds them of this situation. He says, was not Abraham our father proven to be faithful by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then he says in verse 22, you see that faith was active it was living. It was not dead. It was alive along with his works. And faith was completed. Faith was shown to be mature, brought to fruition by his works. I said in the very first sermon when we talked about the book of James, one of James' key ideas is put up or shut up. Put up or shut up. And here he uses the example of Abraham who put up. And notice what he says next in verse 23. He 
quotes from the Old Testament. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And you say to yourself, hmm, that doesn't sound very Paul again. Now you have to understand what James is doing here. Verse 21, where he talks about Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar. What chapter in Genesis does that happen? Twenty-three. And by this point, Abraham is about 125 years old. So what he mentions in verse 21 happens in Genesis 23 when Abraham is about 125 years old. Verse 24, the passage of scripture that he quotes from Genesis. Do you know what chapter it's from? Genesis 15 when Abraham is about 110 years old. In other words, James is not quoting this verse to say, because Abraham lifted up the knife and he was ready to stab his son with it, that that action was used by God to count him as righteous. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, back in Genesis 15, when God said, I will give you an heir, and your descendants will be more than the stars of heaven, Abraham, by faith, believed God. And for the next 15 to 20 years, he lived a life of faith, so that as his faith Matured, and there was an opportunity to act on that faith. In verse 21, he acted on that faith. Abraham was a man of faith, and his faith led him to act. And so that is why, in verse 23, James quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham, the man of faith, believed God and God counted him righteous. And then he showed that his faith was real and he proved that his faith was real by many years later offering his son on the altar. And so what is his conclusion? You see then that a person is justified. They are shown, they are proven that their faith is real by how they act and not simply by saying the words, I believe, I have faith. Faith acts real. Faith demonstrates itself in works. Finally, the second example he uses emphasizes the exact same thing. He says so himself, verse 25, In the same way was not also Rahab 
the prostitute, justified, shown to be righteous, declared to be righteous by the works she did. What works did she do? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Who is she? When Israel was getting ready to go into the promised land, Moses had died and Joshua was leading the people. They were coming to the city of Jericho and messengers were sent. She believed God. She believed that God was going to give his children, Israel, victory over the people who lived in Jericho. And because she believed the truth of that, she acted in a way that showed she believed that by protecting and hiding the spies. Her belief was backed up by her actions. Rahab was proven to have real faith because she did something about it when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So Abraham believed God and it resulted in him acting in obedience to God. Rahab believed God and it resulted in her acting in obedience to God. So James concludes one more time, if you haven't gotten it yet. For as the body, apart from the spirit, now he doesn't mean the Holy Spirit here, he means the same word for spirit is breath. So breathing. A body that doesn't breathe is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. If you say you believe, you show that your faith is real by living a life of faith and obedience. We started by looking at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. Salvation is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you say, James and Paul, they sound like they're disagreeing. What is verse 10, the very next verse in Paul's writing in Ephesians 2? What does the very next verse say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do nothing. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Paul and James don't disagree a living faith a true faith a faith that really follows Jesus acts like it shows it by what you say by what you do by how you live by how you care for other people that is true faith. True faith acts. So in summary, the wrong thinking is to say, yes, I need to have faith, but I also have to do good stuff, and if I do enough good stuff, then God will like me and he will save me. That's wrong. 
Works cannot save you. Works cannot save you. Works cannot save you. But James and Paul and the entire Bible say, if you have faith, then God, as a free gift, gives you salvation. And in response to the salvation that God gives you by faith, you live a life to please Him. So faith equals salvation, which results in works. Works show that your faith is real. Works show that the faith that you say you have is real faith. So what are we supposed to do? Two questions I want to ask you. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have an inactive faith? The kind of faith that doesn't do anything. When opportunities are available to you to serve others, to help others, to live in a Christian way. When there are opportunities for you to do that, do you cop out? Do you turn away? James condemns this as an act of faith. Do you have a false faith? Do you have a faith that pays lip service? I come to this church every Sunday. I put money in the offering. I do this, I do that. But it's all about mental assent. It's all about what you think in your head. It's not about how you live or how you act. James calls this a false faith. Or do you have a true faith where you have placed your trust, your commitment to Jesus Christ? You have repented, you have turned around and you have put your faith in Jesus to commit your life to live a faithful life for him. I hope you have. So what kind of faith do you have? Second question, what are you going to do about it? If you have a true faith in Jesus, live. Live to please him. Continue to live to please him. Do the things that he asks you to do. Sometimes they are hard. Sometimes they involve sacrifice. But that is the right thing to do. Jason Sigsby, if he could stand right here beside me, would tell you, the benefit that he got from doing the right thing was far more than what he had to give up. So if you have true faith, act, live in obedience to what God has told you. But if you have inactive faith or false faith, today is the day when it can be settled. Today is the day when you can move away from inactive faith and false faith and you can say, Jesus, forgive me for what I thought I was and what I did and I want to commit myself to you today to be a true follower of yours, to have real faith that lives to please you. What are you going to do? At the end, Jesus is going to say, when people say to him, Lord, Lord, 
he's going to say, for some, I never knew you. So I would urge you today, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never given your life to Jesus, today is the day that you should give it. And when you give your life in faith, you're giving your whole life to him to say, I want to live for you. I want to please you. Because faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. He is an example of what we are to be. He lived the life of obedience to you. He died on the cross in obedience to you and you raised him from the dead because of his faithful obedience. Help us as followers of Jesus to be faithful livers, faithful doers, faithful workers to demonstrate, to show that our faith is real. And if there are any here today that don't know you, I pray that today would be the day when they would commit their lives to Jesus, that their faith would become real, that their trust and commitment would be real, that they would give their lives to Jesus and commit themselves to live a life of faithful obedience. We thank you for Jesus and for all he has done for us. Help us to live the life of faith in obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.